Welcome back to episode three of Two Brown Girls. With us today is Dr. Jenny Lung from the Sexual Health and Fam- Family Planning ACT. She has been with SHIFPACT for over 20 years and is also a member of the Society of Australian Sex- Sexologists in the ACT branch. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny. Um, let's get right into it. So the first question we wanted to ask, the first set of questions we wanted to ask you was more specific to your experience um, in this field. The first thing we wanted to know is a bit of background. So how did you get involved in the sexual health and family planning space and what made you want to start a career in this area? I came into sexual health and family planning through my work as a GP. Back in the 1980s and 90s, way before you were born, there were fewer female GPs around. And I found that my appointments were filled up with women wanting to come to talk about sexual and reproductive health issues. So my interest in this area grew and developed and I sought to increase my skills by doing the National Family Planning Certificate. Eventually, I shifted my work focus entirely to the Family Planning Clinic, and I did a Master of Sexual Health. And, and I wanted to start a career in this area probably um, way back even before my, um, my working life, in that during my first year of medical school, we went on an ex- excursion to the Family Planning Clinic in Sydney, When I saw them, when they described the work they did, a lot of it was to do with empowering women to take control of their reproductive health. And I got this sense of the compassion, the dedication and the scientific rigour with which they approached their patients' needs. So I felt inspired and I I got attracted to that field. That is amazing to hear. Yeah. Mm. Just generally, what does your day-to-day work look like? Okay, so my day is a combination of clinical work, looking after people who come in with issues, and some admin work and education work. So the patients are mainly women, and although I use the term female or women, I do respect the fact that there are people who don't identify as women, but who have reproductive anatomy that was assigned female at birth. And we, of course, include them, welcome them in our provision of care, and likewise, People who don't identify as men but who have anatomy assigned male at birth uh, are welcome also totally respect that. So the appointments usually consist of people wanting to discuss contraception mainly. People who want to start or continue particular types of contraception, we do procedures such as IUDs and implants, we prescribe pills, ring, injection. Um, People come to discuss their menstrual problems, fertility problems or any problem they suspect of originating in their reproductive anatomy, basically. They come and have their cervical screening tests done. They have their genital lumps and bumps, their discharges and various discomforts checked and maybe treated. And we also test and treat for sexually transmitted infections. And also we have a couple of special doctors who are particularly expert at managing menopause. So there are people who come for that specific issue as well. And apart from that clinical work, I also conduct the family planning certificate course for doctors who want to increase their skills in this area. I run a training course for doctors who want to learn IUDs or implant insertion in their practice. So that's my day. Wow, that really does sound incredible. Um, So in your day-to-day work, do you often interact with culturally diverse people? Um, And have you ever found that people's cultures stop them from seeking sexual health advice? Yeah, 
Mm. Well, a large proportion of our patients are from culturally diverse backgrounds. We provide care to a lot of uni students you know, and refugees and new migrants. We also have some people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds, but uh, but they have a wonderful clinic at Wenunga, um, and we don't have a large proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, but they, they sometimes get referred to us. And of course, there are just a growing number of Canberrans who grew up here but have families that migrated maybe years ago or generations ago from diverse overseas nations, often non-European nations. So yeah, there are culturally diverse people that we interact with a lot. And do I think that culture stops people from seeking sexual health advice? It can. Occasionally, I do come across um, people who tell me that um, that they they came from a family or community background that really didn't talk about sex very much, sometimes not at all. So, so they can be unaware that there are places like our clinic where you can seek health information or seek care. Um, sometimes I find that there are people who come from families that um, feel that sex is something extremely private and not something to be discussed with a stranger, even if that stranger is a healthcare provider. Or there may be some strict moral codes about sex as something that you only deal with when you're married. So prior to being married, you know, doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think there are there are people who, who uh, probably are curious about getting some advice about sexual health matters, but may feel that it's an area that would embarrass or shame their family if, they, if their parents knew about it, if their families knew. Yeah, so there's lots of subtle things that can inhibit people from seeking sexual health advice. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so in the last episode, Thunvi and I were speaking about some of our experiences and I actually went um, with a friend to a sexual health centre um, and we were discussing how it was so strange to even say that out loud, saying we were going to this place. It was sort of a taboo. But anyway, so that's, that's really interesting to hear your opinions on that. Um, I did just want to ask, have you ever been on the receiving end of discrimination coming from your background into this field? It, not into this field, interestingly. Um, we were, I was saying to you before that the sexual health field is very welcoming of diversity and, and is very inclusive. And I found that it was that way even decades ago when, uh, you know, you would think that generally there were fewer people of diverse cultures around, you know, and, and in other areas of life there may be discrimination. Maybe in other areas of medicine that might have been more of an issue, but because I went into this field, fortunately, I have to say, um, I have not experienced discrimination. And um, as it is, there are quite a few uh, women of colour who are in the sexual health field. And when I did my master's, the person who led the course was Dr. Patricia Wirakun, who was, I think, from a Sri Lankan background. She actually originated that master's course. Hmm. So, okay, that's really great because it kind of bridges into what we were going to ask, I guess, as your your experience as a person of colour and kind of being a doctor um, in the sexual health space. So I guess I'm hearing that it, there aren't really many cultural barriers that you, uh, you've you seen a lot of people, oh, well, you've seen some people face, but have you faced cultural barriers when entering the field um, or at least when accessing knowledge about sexual health? Did you ever feel like your culture kind of inhibited you from searching out this information 
Well, well, my culture definitely wanted to inhibit me from seeing out this information. But that probably more ha- happened during my childhood, my school years, not so much after I studied medicine and then started to work. My culture sort of no longer inhibited me in that later stage of my life. But gosh, um, I grew up in a family that was Catholic and Chinese. So the two layers of conservatism reinforced each other. Um, and there was no way I was uh, in any... Uh, <laughs> my parents actually thought it was a good thing for children not to know about sex because that kept them innocent. And if they didn't know about it, they're not going to do it. <laughs> so there was a, yeah, was a very strong um, concept that ran through my family. And I think it was quite similar for my friends of my age who were of Chinese background, but also friends of my age who were of Catholic background. So I I had friends who were mainly, um, because I went to a Catholic school, they were mainly Irish or Italian, sometimes Greek, and Lebanese. Um, And all of them had similar experiences to me. Probably there were some um, more Irish or Anglo families that were a little bit more liberated, when it came to uh, sex and and were more forthcoming with information and education. But there are many people, uh, women of particularly my generation, who look back in their to their adolescent years and remember the, the, the radio silence around sex at that stage. And I tell you a funny story is that when I was about 13, 13 or 14 in year seven, year eight, um, one of my Irish Catholic school friends told us, that found out about how sex, sexual intercourse works and she, she told us that this is what happens. And I said, that's ridiculous. No one would do that. So, so I've come a long way since. Yeah, I guess I'm curious as in what that kind of growth has been mm. like for you in the sense of have you... Um, how did you transition from, I guess, being in an environment where it was very taboo and not spoken about and you uh, didn't even completely believe that that's how sex worked? How did you kind it. of transition from, yeah, from that area mm. um, of knowledge to now being an expert in this field? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when, because I, I did medicine, um, they do teach you about anatomy and physiology in medicine. And, and actually, part of the medical course did discuss sex, you know, reproduction, re- really mostly from a reproductive point of view. But there was a small segment of the course that dealt with sex as um, an activity that humans just do, that um, sexuality was something intrinsic to humans and that everybody needed to express their sexuality in some way, usually. So it was really through that that education process. And, and of course, in, in those days, there was a, that was when, when the feminist movement became quite prominent. So I was exposed to a lot of uh, liberal ideas when I was at uni. I had friends who did not go to Catholic schools. <laughs> So I, I just came under a whole set of different influences. And, of course, then when I started work as a, as a doctor, so many of my patients were women who wanted to, to talk about their reproductive issues. That's so interesting. I want to 
know more about whether your cultural background was kind of a motivator in terms of your entry into this field or did you feel like it was a hindrance or did it just mm. not really affect your decision mm. into um, the field at all? Yes. Now, by the time I was making that decision, it wasn't a hindrance. But of course, as a 16-year-old, I could not have said to my parents, oh, I think I'd like to become a doctor and work in sexual health. <laughs> that is, it would definitely not have gone down well. And um, even to this day, my parents are very embarrassed to tell their friends that I work in sexual health. It's the sex word. The sex word can be quite uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, and my parents uh, will say that I work in women's health. That's all right. That's okay. But not sexual health. So, yeah, I guess mm. the mm. next question was about, yeah, stigma that you may have faced when you talk about your work or these things, either from your members of your cultural community. So I guess, has that personally affected you in any way? Like having your family not necessarily claim that as a part of your job? <laughs> or are you just like, oh, you understand that it's a generational kind of difference? Yeah, it is more a generational difference. I would say that my siblings are quite at ease with the whole issue of me working sexual health. In, in fact, they think it's quite funny and, and, uh, and, and they quite welcome it. But uh, yeah, it's probably an older generation. Now, I don't know, I, what I don't know, and I would be interested to know is, do other Chinese families, let's say, say um, do Chinese families where the parents are my age, if their child said, I would like to work in sexual health when I when I finish school and and go to uni. I don't. I just. I'm sometimes curious about what the people of my generation would say about their children wanting to do sexual health. That's something I will have to explore. I think. Yeah, Divya. I guess we could ask. We could just try and. I mean, not from a Chinese perspective, but from an Indian perspective. Would your parents be chill with you going to the space, or is it still? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think <laughs> even, um, even, even last episode we were talking about how, yeah, saying the word sex is still a taboo. Even talking about periods is a taboo. Like all mm. these things, we can't even talk about it openly in the home, let alone if I was like, mum, I'm going to go and like become a professional in sexual health education. She'd be like, what? Like, no, <laughs> what are you doing? So um, not for me. What about for you, Tanvi? <laughs> I don't know. I think they would be okay I think they would they they recognize the importance and everything and they uh, I, it's a little bit more of a topic that we can express at home but I mean I don't talk about like sex with my parents at least periods is an option to discuss but um I think if I did go into that field they would be supportive of it they're like great this is a good contribution but I think they would do what Jenny, your parents were saying would be like, oh, she works in women's health. Um, let's not specify the sexual aspect of it. I'm a little bit, not going to lie, like nervous for my parents to hear. They're going to hear my thoughts about sexual health and family planning. They're going to be like, what, Tanvi? <laughs> like you, you talk about these things. But I mean, I think if no one does, then someone, someone ought to. Will your parents be listening to this podcast? I, if I said they shouldn't, they will search it out even more. So I will try and give them the freedom to, but I will give them a disclaimer. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing things. Don't worry, mum and dad. 
Yeah, my um, before I actually came to start this recording, Mum was like, "So can we listen to it?" I'm like, "Yeah, once it's once it's out, not now." <laughs> I was like, "Please stay away for now." Well, I have a story to tell you about uh, a sexual health conference I went to a few years ago. I met a Dr. Promadu, who was uh, a doctor who worked in India. And he told me that in his life, he found that there were so many people in his community who didn't know about sex, that after young people got married, they were often very confused and unable to have intercourse to start their family properly because they just never uh, were never given any information about how sex works. So eventually, he actually set up a hospital, and it is called Dr. Promodu's Institute of Marital Health. So we can avoid the word sexual, it's marital health, and, and it is a hospital where young couples who have this problem just get admitted to the hospital for, I think, three weeks. And in that time, they go to lectures about the anatomy and physiology of, you know, male and female reproduction, about sexual arousal, about the mechanics of intercourse. They, they have sex therapy sessions. They're given homework to do. They go back to their hospital room and they've got to practice their homework so that, so that hopefully after their, the time that they've been in this Institute of Marital Health, they're able to go home and actually start a, a, um, a happy and productive sexual life together. Wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, pretty amazing. I'd love to go and visit it one day. I might check it out. I might do a Google search now and yes, research. Dr. Promadu. Uh, yes. Um, I guess the next question is just about when you were our age, like in your early 20s, do you think that your culture influenced how and whether you sought out sexual health advice and I guess how you talked about sex? Yes. Um, yes. Well, by the time I was in my early 20s, because I was at uni and I'd had all those other influences that I was talking about, I was much more at ease about seeking sexual health advice. And when I was about 22, I had a boyfriend. So that kind of opened my eyes a lot. And um, and I went to the family planning clinic at uni. <laughs> so, so did, yes, so, so I'm just thinking back on how I felt in those days. On one hand, I was, uh, I was keen to, to get information, to have access to sexual health services. And there was another layer of me that was very, very aware that it's, it has to be compartmentalized from my family. That is, it's something that would never be mentioned to my parents or even to my siblings. I mean, funnily enough, I don't think my, my siblings would have had any issue with it, but I just thought it was something that because it was never discussed, there was a sense of taboo about it. There were kind of concepts of shame around it. Um, yeah, I had to compartmentalise it. Was that difficult to kind of manage? Uh, or you were you were kind yeah. of got used to it over time. I think it's something that girls from very conservative traditional families accept and adapt to. Mm. So, and, and the same story can come from my my friends who were Irish Catholic, Lebanese Christian. I have Muslim friends, Muslim women friends who describe the same experience. 
So, so I think I think any family and community that has very strong prohibitions against sex being um, conducted in a non-marriage situation, I think girls do tend to adapt to that. It's funny though; the boys don't seem to have this problem. No. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's mm. definitely. I think we'll. I think we'll mm. get into a bit more of mm. some mm. of those gendered differences as well um, mm. later. Yeah. Um, right now, I guess we we also wanted to talk to you about sex education as it's taught mm. in Australia today, and mm. also the way sex is discussed in society more broadly. Um, so last episode, me and Thunvi actually spoke about our experiences with sex ed in Australian schools. Um, and this episode, we wanted to get your opinion on that. So mm. what, in your opinion, do you think um, the sex education curriculum should ideally contain? And what is it lacking at the moment? I think I think the sex education curriculum really needs to have, well, firstly, yes, basic proper scientific information about physiology, sexual development, uh, medical aspects like pregnancy and infection, they are needed but it needs to be taken out of a context of threat and fear. I, I think, to me, there are many instances where sex education is all about avoiding pregnancy, avoiding infections. And, and yes, we, we, should, <laughs> we, we should have control over our reproduction and, and keep ourselves safe. But I, I think it needs to be cast in a more positive um a more positive framework where we where we're educating people and arming them with information to make good decisions rather than warning them so so that that's the tone of sex education i i think would be would well needs a bit of change um the other thing is i think sex education needs to include concepts about a positive body image because many young people look at commercial images of sex or sexual attractiveness and it's a very limited number of body shapes that seem to subscribe to be you know to be incorporated into those concepts of attractiveness and I think everyone must be encouraged to see themselves whatever their body shape is whatever their ability or disability as a fully functioning person who has rights to sexual expression. And the other thing I think we do need to include in sex education is information on how to conduct a relationship or a sexual interaction in a safe and respectful manner, how to give and receive, how to communicate with your partner or partners, how to be aware of a partner's signals about what they do and don't want, you know. Um, and certainly when you look at sort of different countries around the world uh, and comparing places that have very accessible sex education compared with ones that don't, young people who have greater and easier access to good information and sexual health services, they make more assertive decisions about engaging in sex. And they will often choose to delay first intercourse as a matter of choice. So, so I think that this idea that sometimes very that traditional view where where people think that if you deny this information, if the kids don't know about it, they're not going to do it. I think that's actually wrong. Yeah, some of the points you mentioned there are incredible. Um, the points about body image, I didn't even think about that, and that is really, really, um, yeah, important as you said. Really appreciate your uh, your take on that. 
It is another story to tell you from my clinic work is that in the past maybe 10 to 15 years, more and more, um, I've noticed that there are women and girls who, who are worried about the look of their labia. They, they, they sometimes yeah. ask us, you know, the doctors and nurses at the clinic, does, does that look right to you? I'm worried about how that looks. I think that looks unattractive. Or my boyfriend says that that doesn't look right. You know, dump him, dump him. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, so, sorry. so yes, yeah. yeah. So, so the the body image thing goes from not not even just your height and your shape and um, your outward appearance, but it goes to the point of how the how the genitalia look, and and, and there are concerns about how your labia look. So, I feel that that it's very important for, for people to be comfortable with their bodies and proud of their bodies. Definitely. Talking about being comfortable with um, your bodies, do you think there should be sex education on masturbation or self-pleasure? Definitely. Yes, it's very educational to know um, what kind of stimulations and sensations suit you as an individual. And, and if, if you know your own body well, when you have a partner involved, you can communicate that to your partner. It enhances the, the sexual relationship and helps the, the people the people involved to to give and get pleasure together. Um, and do you, and why why did why did you ask that question, Divya? It's a very interesting question. Um, well, yeah, I think it's just something me and Thanvi were thinking about when we think about sex ed because we got no <laughs> absolutely zero uh, no. education on masturbation, so no. it just wasn't. Um, I think an element also is if you are raised in a conservative kind of household where sex isn't spoken about, mm. a byproduct of is that of that is that masturbation isn't talked about, and I think there is still some shame attached to masturbation. Mm. So mm. I don't know. In my opinion, it would be very worthwhile to be included just to kind of destigmatize that as well. I yes. think I yes. think there's stigma still attached to masturbation. There, there um, is. Yeah, there is especially. It's interesting. I think I think there's there's a bigger social stigma tied to male masturbation, and, and I think coming from a sort of Judeo Christian point of view, historically there was the concept of spilling your seed on the ground and wasting it. Oh. So so yes, it's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I think I think there were concepts of. Um, uh, if a man is going to spill his seed or ejaculate, it should be in a woman. Otherwise, it's wasting your seed. And, and that sort of got kind of like um, morphed into concepts of it being uh, 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 an inferior thing to do, that you only do it if you don't have a partner or if there's something wrong with you. So I think I think there was sort of culturally and historically they evolved a kind of stigma around masturbation because of those concepts. Mm. Um, I did actually want to ask you a follow-up question, but I might just merge um, two questions together. Mm. Um, so me and Thanvi in the last episode, we were talking about um, that the, it sort of feels like the most easily accessible stimulation that we have when we you know, choose to um, you know, do these things is porn or dirty stories, um, but they're often not realistic or feminist. Um, yeah. So I feel like we've been socialized to, fi- to find that power imbalance attractive and this might be a long shot, but do you think that the porn industry contributes to misogynistic attitudes? And do you th- do you have any recommendation on how we can change our perspective to stop sexualizing inequality? 
<laughs> well, well, yes. The the porn industry that is easily accessible and visible to all of us, if we were to say Google porn or something, that is very, very concentrated on the on male pleasure and the male orgasm. Now, the biggest consumers of porn are men, so that may be one of the reasons why that is so. But unfortunately, a lot of porn seems to be um, tied into behaviours that, that are violent towards the woman. So that, that I find quite concerning. And, and there are, and I've come across some surveys of young people where, of course, they've all been exposed to, to conventional porn. And the young men seem to think that what they see in that porn is normal sexual behaviour and that, that women actually require and enjoy the violence part of it as well. The, the girls, meanwhile, don't enjoy it, but they're kind of socialised into thinking that they, that they need to accept those behaviours, that there's something wrong with themselves if they don't accept it and go along with it. So this is where I think it's really troubling. And how do you, how do you fix that? I don't know. It's, I think it's going to be generations. It's like, it's like how do we fix uh, wage equality for women? How did we get women the vote, you know, how, how is it that uh, women don't have to consult their husbands to get a bank loan? So I think it's, a, it's part of a broader societal issue that's going to gradually evolve and it can only do so if, if we women actually um, are vocal about it, if we call it out and we, we communicate to our partners that actually, reality check, that's not what we want to do. Um, and it also partly, I think, is hinged on how we bring up our sons, how our brothers are brought up, how are our male partners brought up, what social and familial concepts are they exposed to when it comes to sex and relationships with women. So it means that, um, that you know, when you have children, if you have sons, how you bring them up is going to be very important in evolving this more equal society. But having said that, there, there is feminist porn, but 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 porn. See that the word porn is a tricky one because there's a kind of a blurry line where where is this porn or is it not really porn? You know. So 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 if you Google feminist erotica, erotica yeah. is probably a better word. There is actually a growing world of feminist erotica. There is even Christian erotica. <laughs> There, there is Islamic erotica and Jewish erotica. So people from conservative and religiously based backgrounds do recognise that enjoying a sexual relationship is actually part of life. And, and they can actually incorporate sexual enjoyment into their cultural and religious background. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the previous episode we were talking, at least um, for me, like my experience with porn and everything has more been mm. through erotic books and things like that yes, rather than, yes, than sure. the visual mm. because I found it kind of graphic and very confronting mm. initially oh, yes. and mm. um and I guess yeah I'm curious as in like sometimes you kind of get set desensitized to that material and I think I've spoken to some male friends and it's been like you need even more stimulus for you to get there and 
it's kind of problematic in a way because it's mm. like it has to just eventually gr- get more um, explicit and violent mm. for someone yes. to kind of find their release. So it's a bit mm. concerning. So I don't know. I'm like, can we just make like feminist erotica for boys? Mm. Like some, <laughs> like some yes. good books for men to read. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's it's tricky because outrage and sensation and things that are shocking do attract attention, and I think that um, the porn industry probably sort of grew into that because it, it, you attract more views if it's more shocking, if it's more um, confronting. So I, I remember watching a program where it was actually about the evolution of the porn industry from, say, 50 years ago to now. And in fact, it was the porn film industry. And there was there, there were some older actors who used to act in porn movies in the 1970s. And, um, and they, they said that as time went on, they, they found that... Um, porn movies changed from something that had a kind of a romantic element in it as well as the graphic physical stuff into things that were more and more outrageous and unreal. And the actors said that they found themselves being asked to do these more and more outrageous things. And they said, it's just completely unrealistic. It's not something that you know, people naturally generally want to do in their real lives. So that was a, a very interesting perspective from the point of view of the actual the actor who acted in the porn movies, noticing this change. Mm. Oh, that's so mm. that's so mm. interesting, and I and mm. I really appreciate all your commentary about the porn industry. I guess just doing a little bit of a switch <laughs> to a new topic. Um, well, not that far off. It's still about sex, but um, kind of looking at sex and contraception but my first question is Mm. does a woman always bleed when they first have sex that might be a very basic one but (laughs) yes it's a very pervasive idea but actually most women don't bleed the first time they have sex some women do and there are plenty of women who bleed the 50th time they have sex so it's a bit of trauma to the skin around the vagina is not that unusual but this concept of the sort of the virgin person um, bleeding the first time they have intercourse, that, uh, that is going to be the source of a lot of uh, anxiety and disappointment for, for people. And I've got a story about that. Mm. Some years ago, a, a friend who worked in a, in a hospital emergency department in southwestern Sydney told me that she had a very distressed young bride and bridegroom, the mother-in-law and the father-in-law rushing into the emergency department one day, one night, one night, because it was the wedding night and the young bride had not bled. So they wanted the doctors in the emergency department to examine this girl and see what was wrong with her was she really a virgin it it was it was actually very 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 distressed family they were so um there was a very senior woman doctor in there who took the young bride in to a cubicle by herself and had a, a good long talk with her and the bride had never had sex with anyone other than her husband that wedding night but she didn't bleed so the 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 very senior doctor just got a, a little needle and made a little 
prickle in the hymen of the little of the young woman and and let the blood uh, sort of settle into a, a piece of cloth and the doctor went out and said to the family oh it's fine she's bleeding see so everybody was happy mm. <laughs> so you know she she's the doctor explained to this young bride that not everybody bleeds on first intercourse, but if it's important to everyone in your family that you that you bleed, we'll just make you bleed now. <laughs> and, you know, she produced this bit of, you know, bleeding and showed everyone and everybody was fine then. So, so I mean, the, the, the importance of, of the bleeding with first intercourse is um, the source of a lot of distress and anxiety for people. It's very unnecessary. Your, the hymen is like a, a hair scrunchie, you know, you know, hair scrunchies, they're very yeah. elastic, you know, and, and everybody uh, is a little bit different. Some people have a smaller or tighter hair scrunchie. Other people have a very stretchy hair scrunchie. So if you happen to be a person with a very stretchy one, you, you know, you're not, you're not going to bleed. Things are going to, not, things are not going to, the skin's not going to be traumatized that much with first intercourse. Mm. I guess just a question, I think I have had it mm. listed later, but I just think it's relevant now in terms of that um, scrunchy kind of comparison. Mm. Mm. Um, I think that there's also some ideas about women who are more promiscuous tend to have looser vaginas and they and it's not as pleasurable. And, and also, yeah, just like, so suppose you have a stretchy <laughs> scrunchy does that make it less pleasurable um like yeah <laughs> less ple- pleasurable for whom the for man, the man for the man because that's, <laughs> and, and that's where, all we care about did you hear this from i'm so curious oh i think that there's been i don't know discourse like maybe in media um or at least when people slut shame in a way i think that there is some view that well one she's less pure and all that BS, but the other aspect of um, her not, it not being as pleasurable for the man. I've heard of that as well. Um, the place I've heard about it is just with friends and um, also in the media. I think there was a show, I forgot what, oh, um, uh, some Virgin Jane? I forgot what it's called. Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin, yeah. <laughs> um, where um, they use the um, this visualization of a flower as as virginity and um i can't remember what the analogy was anymore but yeah i've heard this where like if you have more sex your vagina gets loose and then it's not pleasurable anymore but i think we um then v and i were speaking about this and we're like well if we can push a baby out of there surely surely that's not true don't know yes absolutely Uh, the 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 the, what we call the tightness of the vagina is really to do with the pelvic muscles so there's a, there are sheets of muscles in, in the pelvic floor that more or less holds your organs up. And uh, they and essentially what your partner is feeling is the firmness of that, that pelvic floor. So when people have difficulty having intercourse, you know, you've probably heard of the term vaginismus, that that's actually the tightness an over-tightness of the pelvic floor that actually prevents intercourse from being able to occur or being able to occur without a lot of discomfort. 
So really, uh, if, if uh, someone is concerned about their male partner's pleasure, they should really probably just make sure that they maintain their pelvic floor well. And, uh, and you're right, if you can push out a baby, how stretchy is the vagina? It's very, it is a very elastic organ. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, that, that idea of, um, of um, having a lot of intercourse causing things to loosen up, I think that's just one of these. Um, I think I, I find it a slightly misogynistic kind of concept because there are you know, many couples who've, who've had many years of a happy sexual relationship together, decades of it, and, uh, you know, they... There's no, that's not an issue. You know, the loosening is not an issue. And and if you do think that there's looseness, you can actually help that with maintaining your pelvic floor. Yeah. Hmm. The next set of questions are about contraception. So what are the different contraception options and what are the nitty gritty differences? Maybe if you could give a small summary just between i guess the rod versus mm. the pill versus the iud versus the female and male condom so the ones i'm curious about are the female mm. ones so the rod the pill and the iud how how do those ones differ well i i think when you, when it comes to contraception especially at your age when you're a fertile young woman uh you need to work out how important is it to avoid pregnancy, because all contraception has a small failure rate, even when it's used properly. So, if you were, if you thought the paramount thing is to avoid pregnancy, you would probably look at the methods that have the lowest failure rate. So, that would be the the little rod, the implant, or the IUDs. Um, or the injection. That's not as popular now. People generally don't like having to have an injection. <laughs> every, I think post the vaccine, people might be coming back to it. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes, maybe. So when you look at the, um, the little rod and the IUD, those things are, are things that you can just have sitting in your body quietly, releasing a very low level of hormone, but uh, have a very low failure rate at preventing pregnancy, highly successful at preventing pregnancy. If we go down the tier of success, we're looking at things like the pill, which is also very good if it's taken absolutely diligently. But because it's something you've got to do every day, there's a big um, opportunity for forgetting to take it. And sometimes people start taking medications that actually interfere with the pill and its ability to prevent pregnancy. And there are people with uh, medical conditions, which means the pill is not suitable for them. See, the pill actually contains two hormones, an estrogen and a progestogen. And um, up till probably the last 15 years or so, the pill was almost like the last word in contraception. Women are now liberated and can control their fertility because all they need to do is take this pill. But of course, we do run into problems with like I said, people not not taking or not remembering to take it, or people who have medical medical conditions that makes the pill unsafe for them. So the unsafe um, aspect of the pill are usually related to the estrogen component of the pill. 
So that's the component that increases slightly increases your risk of um, uh, of increasing your blood pressure, increases your your uh, ability for your blood to clot. So. So probably the worst thing that can happen to a young woman on the pill is for her to get a blood clot that usually it starts off in the legs but could travel to the lungs and sometimes to the brain. It's very, very rare, incredibly rare. In fact, if, if someone was pregnant, they'd be 30 to 40 times more likely to get a clot from the pregnancy hormones than from, from taking the pill. But if you, if you go to things like the rod and the, the IUD, there's no, there's no estrogen in them. So, so you don't actually have those concerns. Um, but, and at the same time, they actually work better at preventing pregnancy because there's no forgetting. So, so, so you've got to sort of weigh up what's in your comfort zone. Now, when we explain all of that to, to people, there will be some people who say, I don't like the idea of having something in my skin or inserted into me. And I like the idea of having something that's in my control to stop or start. So people in that situation will probably choose the normal pill. Now, only recently in the last couple of months, there's been a pill that's arrived on the market that contains no estrogen. It's not covered by the PBS, so it's more expensive than the normal pill. But it may be that in future, more women who want to use a pill will use that pill instead of the usual pill. So the world of contraception is growing and evolving all the time, and there are more and more choices coming along for for women. Mm. Mm. I think, sorry, also just another concern, I don't know, that some people might have is, I think, the period halting. And I think that people Ah, have concerns of, oh, does this affect my fertility in the future? Because I do want to have kids in the future, just not right now. So how does the rod and the, I've heard that the rod and the IUD, I think your period stops Mm -hmm. when it's Mm -hmm. installed. So Mm. how does that have any impact? Yeah. Yes. The, the, the question of future fertility is that lots of studies now have shown that the pill, the little rod, the IUD, they actually don't have any effect on your future fertility. They are just quickly and easily reversible. In fact, when especially with the rod, they actually did studies to show, to find out how quickly women return to ovulating after they stopped using the rod. And over 90% of people ovulated within three weeks of having the rod removed mm. so so those reversible methods don't affect your fertility and in fact none of the hormone contraceptions cause a permanent impairment of fertility now when it comes to the period i think again it's 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 a part it's partly a cultural thing in that i find that it's in my own family of origin and in many conservative cultures there's a an idea that you have to bleed every month for that to be natural and healthy. Mm. Now, now, whether it's healthy to not bleed at all depends on the reason for it. If the reason for you not having a bleed every month is because the contraception hormones are keeping the cells in the lining of your uterus thin and stable, and everything is quiet in there and it's not building up like it does under your natural menstrual cycle, then there's nothing that needs to bleed or shed. Nothing's thickening up or building up requiring to be shed at all. And I think culturally we we have this concept that there's something that needs to come out every month and there's a worry if it doesn't. That That could be the situation if you're not using any hormone contraception and your body just decides to not have a period. 
Are you pregnant? That's one reason for not having a period is, are you pregnant? If you're not pregnant and you don't have a period and you're not using hormone contraception, then you do need to go to the doctor and find out why. But if you're using hormone contraception and that's the reason for you not having a period, that is actually quite healthy. In fact, we know now that people who have been on the pill in the past have a much lower rate of cancer of the uterus and cancer of the ovaries because when you're using the pill, the ovaries are very quiet and the lining of the uterus is very quiet. So the cells aren't proliferating and, and um, turning over and changing and growing all the time. And it's thought that by quietening the cells down like that, uh, that is the reason why women who've been on the pill have been found decades later to have a lower risk of cancer of the uterus and cancer of the ovaries. Mm. That's great. I think we might move on to some just general questions. Sure. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there were just some things we were curious about and we had just uh, general knowledge questions um, because I feel like there is not enough education about this stuff and we don't know about it ourselves. Mm. So um, we did just want to ask um, just briefly for someone who doesn't know much about um, a woman's body or a person mm. with a um, vagina's body, um, could you give us a little anatomy lesson and intro into the genitalia and how things actually work? Okay, so... If if you were to have you ever looked at your own genitalia? Yes. Um, it's probably it is a good idea to look with a mirror, but when you're looking, it's better to be in a kind of like a recliner chair situation where your your back is supported, so you can actually look down low enough without sort of getting tired or sort of like pricking your neck or trying to do a sit up. But but what, what you will probably see when you look initially are the two labia major. Do you know what the labia major are? So, yeah, that's kind of like the more fleshy skin folds that, that sort of seem to sometimes close together. Now, if you were to part the labia, you will see the labia minor. The labia minor is that sort of petal-like, it, it looks almost like part of an orchid. You know, there's like two smaller flaps of skin inside. Up the top is where the clitoris sits protected in a hood. And that, that's the part that looks like the, the inside of an orchid. Lower down from that, you, you, will, you will see the vaginal opening. But if you haven't had a baby, sometimes the vaginal opening can look very, very closed. Even though it's very stretchy, it, it doesn't look like a passage. It's not a hole. You won't see a hole. Okay. <laughs> the, the vagina is actually a very elastic uh, passage. When In you, the vagina is not a tube or a tunnel. It's actually a, a closed, a softly closed elastic passage that stretches to accommodate whatever goes in or out of there. So, so, so unless you actually stretch the skin around the bottom of the vulva, the vulva is all the external parts that you can see. Unless you sort of stretch that area, you won't actually see the vagina as an opening usually in someone of your age generally. And is the, yes. is the urethra different to the vagina? Yes, the urethra can be viewed almost within the vaginal opening. The urethra is the opening to your bladder. Okay, so, so there are actually three openings down there in, in that 
bottom area of a woman's body. The urethra is the one that's furthest at the front. It means, it means if you're looking at yourself with a mirror, it would be at the top. And you actually might not see that unless you part the vaginal opening a little bit because it's often tucked just inside that area at the vaginal opening, you know, just above the vagina. And it's a very, very small opening. And for some women, the urethral opening is, is sort of has got a, a little flap of skin where, it, where it's quite hard to see that it is actually an opening. But, but if you were to move the skin around, then you will see that the opening actually does become apparent. So, the, so there's the urethra, and then underneath the, the urethra is the vaginal opening that leads in towards your uterus. Below, below that would be the, the anus. So probably most people can recognize their anus because it's more external. You can actually see quite clearly where the anus is, whereas the vagina and the urethra are a little bit concealed within that vulva labia area. Does that, does that make sense? Definitely, yes, yes. And I think that's super helpful. <laughs> I was visualizing as you were saying, and I was like, that yes. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so, so next time you look, you, you need to part the skin a little bit, move things around so that you can actually see the structures that are a little bit hidden. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the follow-up questions we had from after learning about, you know, the different parts down there is the best way to groom and keep clean down there. Just because we've heard very conflicting advice coming from the media and friends and people who we probably shouldn't be listening to. Um, we've heard things like uh, on one side, we've heard that the vagina is self-cleaning and nothing needs to be done to it. On the other side, we've heard things like there are products like Vagisil and FemFresh, which are advertised specifically to clean the vagina. Um, and then, you know, other people say use soap. <laughs> so, yeah. And also we've heard that, you know, shaving is healthy or shaving is unhealthy because it something about hair, uh, make sure bacteria doesn't go in there. So there's all this conflicting advice. And we wanted to hear from you. What's the best way to, to groom? Okay. Now, the, it is true that the vagina is quite a self-cleaning um, microenvironment because there are protective mechanisms that keeps things in an equilibrium. There are there are this, there are structures in the skin around the vagina and inside the skin of the vagina that that allows old cells and debris to move outwards. So as you know, the vaginal walls does exude a little bit of fluid. The, the, the cervix in the uterus produces mucus, which protects the inside of the uterus, but also allows, allows the carrying out of old cells, etc. There are hormonal factors that keep your vagina healthy. And there are bacteria in your vagina that are meant to be there. We, we are covered in microorganisms. We can't see them, but we are covered in them. And they have to be there for us to be healthy because in some ways they actually prevent the bad organisms from taking up space in us. So, so when it comes to, um, when it comes to cleaning, you don't really need to clean, just use a little bit of water to wash away sweatiness. If you feel that you know you've had a day doing exercise or you've been cooped up and you feel things are a bit sweaty, just a bit of water will be fine. Soap will actually strip away the natural the natural acidity and the natural oils that keep the vulval skin healthy. And you certainly never need to wash inside the vagina. Mm. Let the vagina do it naturally by itself. As for commercial um, uh, products, 
We generally advise women not to use those because there are many, many substances that go into the making of a commercial products and those things can cause irritations and allergy, changes the, the natural pH of that vagina and the vulval skin, strips off all that protective um, layer that your body naturally places there. So yeah, just avoid all of that. Mm. Oh, and shaving. Oh, shaving. Shaving is neither healthy nor unhealthy. Um, if you're very concerned about pubic lice, it is better <laughs> to shave. But I, you know, not that many people have a problem with pubic lice generally. But in our, I must say, in our clinic, we are seeing less pubic lice because there is more shaving. But on the other hand, you've got to balance that with the discomfort and the itchy, prickly feeling of the hair growing back. Are you prepared to put up with that? You know, there really isn't a great reason for shaving as a hygiene procedure. It's really, I think, more a cosmetic thing now. Do you think? Is that is that your impression that it's really more people shave their sort of genital region because of cosmetic reasons? Yeah, I definitely think that I think I was having a conversation with Divya earlier about how it's kind of I don't know I mean this is a controversial take but a bit creepy after a point that we're so obsessed with the very clean shaven look like the very youthful like to a point where it's a little bit like why is this attractive yes. why is like I think it's yes. like we have such a distaste for like aging for women um yes. and I think any signs of that we're always trying to eradicate so I think that sometimes yes. this whole shaving and waxing and laser hair removal it's just like still feeding into that notion that a woman should still be youthful and bear down there and everything mm. so I don't know well in my decades in the sexual health world looking at many many you know examining many you know female um reproductive anatomies um hairlessness has only occurred in the last 15 to 20 years. The first half of my career in women's health and sexual health, every woman had a healthy, lush bush of pubic hair, and that was normal. And then, and I remember our, our clinic, our nurses and doctors, commenting on the first few women who came into our clinic with no hair. And like Tanvi, we thought, this is concerning. Why do these women feel that they need to look pre-pubertal almost. So uh, we haven't been able to answer that question, but, but there is something about that, that change in, um, in, 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 that, in popular culture around the look of genitalia. And I just wonder whether it coincides with the escalation of internet porn, whether there's some sort of a connection there between the hairless female genitalia and, and, and the advent of, of widespread porn. Yeah, I was just going to add a comment where I've actually had this conversation with um, a few male friends of mine, which I never thought mm -hmm. I would have. Um, but just as a general comment, when we yeah. were talking about this, we sort of thought it was infantilizing women. Um, not only women, but I feel like men are also shaving down there as well, um, yeah. more nowadays. Um, yes. But we did have this conversation where we were like, mm, it feels a bit weird when someone looks mm. bare because it's like you're a baby. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Um, but yes. um, yeah, but anyway, moving on, we do actually have just one general question, one more general question mm -hmm. about pap smears. Um, we are super unsure about the process and when we should start getting them and what they are. Okay. 
a, a pap smear is now called the cervical screening test, and it's there to detect the presence of the viruses that cause cervical cancer. So you only need to have a pap smear after you turn 25. So when you're 25 or older, the government will send you an invitation to go and have cervical screening. The, the word pap smear still hangs around. It's very popular because we've always understood what a pap smear was, which, which is basically a brushing of cells that are being shed by the cervix, meaning the, the bottom section of your uterus. Um, and then with the pap smear, the cells were actually placed on a glass slide and then the pathologist looks at the slide under a microscope and works out whether there are unusual looking cells or not. And we've been doing that since 1920. So it's very old technology and it was only around 50% accurate. So that's why people had to have it every two years. You had to keep repeating it and repeating it frequently enough to minimize the false negative results. But now, since 2017, the cervical screening test no longer does the um, sort of like smear on the glass slide thing. We still collect the sample the same way, but that sample goes away to be tested for the presence of the virus that can cause cervical cancer. You only need to do it after you're 25 because many years of studies have shown us that when we, when we screen women who don't have any symptoms at all, but we just ask them to come and have a cervical screen regularly, we actually don't prevent them from getting cervical cancer and we don't actually save any lives in that age group. So there's something about the very, very rare instances where women under 25 get cervical cancer that actually requires sort of something a little bit different to the regular screening. But, uh, but I have to say that getting cervical cancer under the age of 25 is very, very, very rare. Hmm. Now, do you, did you mean to, to ask me how, how the pap smear is, or how the cervical screening test is done? Like what happens when you go and get one? Is that what you meant? I mean, we would I love to know. know. Yeah. We would love to oh, know. Oh, oh. So, 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 of course, the, the cells that we need are collected from the cervix, which is the bottom of the uterus. And that, that's a little round structure that grows into the top of the vagina. To get access to, to that, we use a speculum, which is a little plastic sort of um, instrument that slides into the vagina. And remember I said the vagina is a soft, elastic, closed space? Well, the speculum actually holds open it opened that space so that we can actually see the cervix and can collect the cells from the right area. So, so, so that's probably the part that a lot of girls feel concerned about that that's going to hurt. Generally, it's, it doesn't really hurt. For people who have had intercourse comfortably, certainly they don't find the speculum to be any issue mostly, but um, there is a kind of like a stretchy feeling um, attached to it, which for some people, if, if, especially if they've had uncomfortable intercourse, it can actually trigger discomfort that way. But overall, at our clinic, we're very aware that, that it can be uncomfortable, so we do our very best to make things as comfortable as possible, to get access to that, to get the get an appropriate sampling of the cells and to send that off for testing. Thank you. That that definitely answers our question. Um, mm. And I think we're I, I'm a lot less scared of it now than I was. Mm. Oh, oh, there's no need to be scared. 
Um, yeah, just for the last bit, we wanted to have a little lightning round with you. Um, so yeah, we'll just ask you a bunch of questions and if you could just give us like sure, your yeah. lightning answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first one, I'll go first. So we've heard that sex is only heterosexual and is only penis and vagina sex. Is this true? Do you think that's true? <laughs> that, no, that, no that, that's probably the Bill Clinton um, claim about sex. Bill Clinton, of course, had oral sex with a, a young woman in his employ. And, and, and when he was accused of that, they, he said, I did not have sex with that woman. So, so no, look, look, uh, look it's, it's, it's what sex, sex being penis in vagina is unfortunately one of those things that probably causes um, a lot of concern for people. Sex, I, I think, in general, in the, in the sexology world, we think of sex as something that gives you a sense of intimacy and pleasure that you either um, can do for yourself or you share with a partner or partners. And it can involve any part of your body at all, anything that gives you that feeling of intimacy, closeness of, or pleasure. The penis and the vagina don't have to be involved. But it is true that a lot of people out there in the world think that that is what sex is and that if you're not doing that, you're not having sex. It's unfortunate. Mm. The I guess the next one that we had was um, mm. women or people with vaginas lose something when they have sex. So I think that obviously probably comes from the virginity construct. But, I mean, realistically, do they lose anything? Lose what? <laughs> Maybe they, they break, yeah, like your hymen breaks. And, oh, yeah. oh, oh. Well, I mean, do you need or want your hymen not to break? I mean, <laughs> what is the point of an unbroken hymen? Well, the thing is the hymen generally isn't broken in most people. There's no break. Like I was saying before, there's skin trauma does happen with sex, but it doesn't necessarily happen to everybody. In fact, most people find that their, their, their hymen stretches, nothing breaks, it just stretches. Mm. I, I will. I think I should send you some links. There is a wonderful, um, a wonderful uh, book called *The Vaginal Corona*, written by a group in Sweden that explains everything about the hymen, and 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 actually dispels this myth that the hymen is something that breaks. The hymen is shaped differently in in different people. In fact, your vulva. Each woman's vulva is as different as her face. From the next woman's face. So the hymen is different in different women. Most people have the hair scrunchy type hymen that I was describing, but even then the, the shape and, and, and size of it can be different. Some people unfortunately do have a condition called an imperforate hymen where there is actually no opening. And in fact, those people, when they first menstruate, they have a problem of the blood collecting inside the vagina and not being able to come up, which causes a lot of pain and discomfort. And often they will discover that they have an imperfect hymen that way. So, so yeah, there are, there are some people with, an, with rare conditions of the hymen where breaking does seem to be, be part of it. But, but I think, you know, you, we really need to be comfortable with the fact that our hymen is probably not going to be break if we have comfortable sex. Yeah, mm. and and I guess also just in terms of the virginity aspect, yeah. like, um, what I guess what is your take on that? Well, I think that's a historical thing where women are considered a commodity, or or the it's a, or a possession of the man. Now, why? Why? What's the benefit in having a a, a person who's a virgin 
as your partner, if you're a male person, I guess it, it reassures you that any child that comes out of that woman is going to be your child and your DNA. So I think it is actually vested in concepts of possession. So, so I think I think as women, we need to be convinced that we are not just a commodity that belongs to the male people in our lives, um, and that uh, sexual activity or that sexual expression is something that we have a right to, um, and that that we don't that that we shouldn't be seen as some someone who's lost something or a little bit deficient because we have been sexually expressive. I, I think I think. I think you girls have got to carry that banner on into the next generation. <laughs> Absolutely. We will try our best. Um, so the mm. next question we had for the lightning round is, we've heard that sex is painful. We've heard characters in movies say this. We've heard friends say things like it didn't fit. It didn't even go in. Um, yeah. So yeah, is sex meant to be painful? It's not meant to be painful. And there are many reasons for pain. Meaning pain is not an unusual thing for people to, for women to complain of when it comes to sex and quite a lot of our patients do have sexual pain and often there are reasons for that there are uh, medical or anatomical reasons and often to do with the pelvic floor and the nerves around that area sometimes past trauma can actually set up a cycle of of uh, painful experiences um, and there are ways there, there are ways to manage that now when when yeah, it very much depends on the context in which this pain occurred. Some people report that the first time they have intercourse, they're just not accustomed to, their vagina's just not accustomed to that degree of stretch. So if they're not lubricated enough or not aroused enough, if they feel a little bit anxious, the, the, the vagina may not stretch easily to accommodate the diameter of the penis. And, and yes, it can be uncomfortable in that in that situation um, and the solution to that is really working with a partner to make sure that things are gradual and gentle that there's enough lubrication maybe use plenty of lubricant make sure that you feel aroused and the woman actually wants to have the penis inside her so the sort of sex is a bio psycho, psycho and social thing so all those elements have to be together for sex to be comfortable Mm. And again, um, penises have different diameters, vaginas have different diameters and stretchability. Most penises fit into most vaginas, but if there's anxiety, if there's any rushing, if, if both partners aren't prepared and there's not enough arousal and lubrication, that, that is probably the reason for that experience of things not fitting. Okay, perfect. And just the last question for this mm. lightning round. Is there such a thing as a dick that's too big? Well, I mean, anything is possible. But I must say, in my, in my experience, generally, there hasn't, people have, women have not complained of a dick that is too big. Because, like you said earlier on in this interview, a baby can come out of a vagina there is no dick that's as big as a baby. So so, so most penises sort of fall within a certain range. Yes, some are larger. Um, 
And I guess if you had a woman who's naturally has quite a, a small vagina and matching up with a man who has a very large diameter, upper end of the normal range diameter penis, maybe there could be some difficulty there. But probably it could be worked around. Mm. So I guess that brings us then to the end. I just mm. want to thank you so much for answering everything. And we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Um, I guess just to end on a nice note, if mm. you could provide any advice that you could give to young people on their sexual health journey, what would that be? Well, well, it would be what the nuns once told me, funnily enough. I remember the, they, they said respect yourself and your body, take care of yourself, respect and care for your partner. But also know that there are people and resources and clinics that are genuinely there to facilitate a safe and joyful sexual health journey for you. So seek them out and make sure that you get information from those reliable sources. Get trustworthy information and help and learn to discern what is misinformation. So I would say that. That's amazing. That's such a good way to end this interview. And you really, really informed me so much. I think my opinions and thing and, and just knowledge has been broadened a lot. So I'm really hopeful that our listeners are also taking in all this information and putting it in like a Bible or something, a sex <laughs> health Bible, because this has been really valuable. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, we really, really appreciate all the knowledge you've imparted on us. And like you said, we will try and um, we we will try and wave that flag and bear that uh, that responsibility to carry forward this knowledge. Yes. Alrighty, well, this has been a really, really insightful interview with Dr. Jenny Lung. Um, for our listeners, we will see you same time next week for our next episode. Following on from our discussions this week, we will be talking about a much more serious issue, sexual harassment and assault. So just a heads up to those who may want to prepare themselves for the next one, or maybe skip it all together. In the meantime, please follow us on Instagram at 2BrownGirlsAU for more updates, thoughts and behind the scenes content. See you next week.